very purposefully cultivate the sacred in our space. When you walk in for an event, or even if you're coming for an individual rope journey with either of us or both of us, you're walking into a candlelit space. You're walking into a space that has an altar that's set. We call it rope church. <laughs> it is. It is. It's a sacred activity. Welcome to our very first episode of Leela Cast ATX, a podcast about the intersection of healing and play. We're so excited to have interviewed Erica Dama and Summer Estrella of Awakening Arts. Summer Estrella and Eric facilitate and practice shibari, a form of artistic and sometimes erotic rope bondage originating in Japan. But these two are doing something unique with shibari. The workshops and the individual sessions they offer are intentional healing spaces, sacred spaces, spaces of conscious communication and consent. People who work with them often share experiences of deep safety, surrender, and blissful letting go. I always had such a passion for making people smile. I feel my purpose here is to bring joy and enlightenment through helping people create change that's lasting and healing, it's so fulfilling. So it's brought me here and I get to play. In this conversation, we'll go on a journey hearing about their past, their own healing, and their lives now as a couple, co-founder, as well as facilitators. We will explore the intriguing and complex dynamics that can be healed through Shabari and the space of surrender and clarity and empowerment it opens. We hope that the stories and insights shared by Summer, Estrella, and Eric will leave you with some new perspectives for your own life, relationships, play, and healing. A revolution integrating playfulness into healing and healing into play. A podcast where we talk to the healers, leaders, and conductors behind the scenes. Keep walking us into the rituals, if you will. You walk into a space that's been completely clean from top to bottom. We have this whole ritual and routine. We've smudged the place with Palo Santo or sage. So we're actually cultivating the sacred prior to you walking into that space. And yeah, we yes. do it on purpose because that adds that extra layer to the ability to drop into your vulnerability, which is yeah. what we're trying to invite in that space. And so it's, yeah, it adds that sacred. One of the biggest compliments that we often get later from people after leaving our events, they're like, I did not think that I could walk into a place that had a bunch of rope tying people up and feel so safe. Like, mm. that, that makes my heart sing every single time I hear that. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly what we were trying to do, create that safety. We have a foundational scene creation where we check in with you. Are you emotionally, mentally, physically, spiritually? Once we get through that, we'll go over consent negotiation. So embodied consent. You'll look at the tools that are on the table for us to play with you. And without any attachment, we'll put away anything that doesn't serve you for the journey. So enticing, so playful, so much integrity. I love hearing all of that. I'm curious to hear about your own personal rituals, like when you wake up in the morning, what do each of your morning rituals look like? Maybe tell us about what you've done so far today. How did you prepare to arrive here with us? So we sleep in separate spaces. It's always been an energetic thing for us because we spend so much time with each other. We run a business together, so sleeping in separate spaces has become our way that we re-energize. Obviously, that doesn't shorten any of all the awesome intimacy and cuddling that we do prior to separating to our yeah. own spaces to sleep. I usually wake up before her. 
and I do a little meditation with my little dog, and then sometimes I'll go in and wake her up to go to the gym and go for a swim, and someday I just leave her alone, and she wakes up and does her own meditation. So today was a little bit of that. Yeah, I, I like to orient, drink water. I always feel so grateful for my view out my window. It's really pretty. Lots of green, and then I pummel him when we do naked cuddles. Could you say a little bit more about orienting? It's a tool to help us feel more grounded in our nervous system. As animals, you notice animals when they go to new spaces, they're sniffing their perimeter. As animals, we like to look around and see what's going on. And a lot of times we're programmed, like, don't look away. Look, give me eye contact. So it's part of our being to to want to look around and see what's going on. I'm very visual. I have a very active mind. So a lot of times sitting and sitting down and just doing meditation isn't really conducive to helping me calm down. <laughs> so just looking out my window and noticing the trees and a squirrel and birds, and it just helps me feel like, okay, cool. I know what's going on around me. I can feel gratitude. We're all orienting naturally anyways. Just, yeah. We're just doing it unconsciously. Mm -hmm. So orienting is a technique that we borrow the term from somatic experiencing, where you actually consciously look around and identify points throughout the room, which is a thing that we'll do too with clients that we're leading on a rope journey because we're going to take them into a trance. So to have them orient around the room gives them the thread at the beginning they enter into the trance and then when they come back out, they reattach themselves to the reality around them. I can feel how that's a really helpful way to arrive in any space, especially a space where you're going to go into a trance. Another question that we really like to start out with is about the overall trajectory of your arrival in who you are today, thinking of the story of your life as a whole. So is there a moment in your childhood or in your youth where you feel like you had an early seed planted of the work that you're now doing? I do these little self-journaling recordings. I just did one recently out in nature whenever I'm on my morning hikes, but it's just like that realization. I wouldn't change anything about my past. It almost feels like every single experience that I've had, even the most traumatic ones, were seeds that were being planted for this work. Even ones that I didn't choose. Trigger warning, I'm a survivor of child sexual abuse from in my family. Members of my family and then also members of the church that we went to, Unfortunately, back when I was young, it was really prevalent in churches and religious environments. So it was something that I learned to navigate. And I look back on that now, and I wouldn't wish any of that experience on anyone ever. But now I, I can't, in my right mind, feeling where I'm at in this place now, say that I would change any of it because it has given me the ability to see the way that I see, to feel the way that I feel. And it set me on a journey to this space that I'm in right now, in this room. This, this set me on a path into meeting this beautiful person right here next to me. And I wouldn't change any of that for the world. So it almost seems like every experience has been that seed moving. There's like this strange yeah. directive that my unconscious mind has been like, just keep going, keep going. Keep going. It's not easy gratitude, but then it is easy gratitude. Do you relate to the term wounded healer? I don't know if there exists a healer who hasn't been wounded. 
uh, like Terence McKenna, the famous recognized that the world is filled with uninitiated shaman, people who have been, you know, diagnosed or deemed as mad or inoperable in society for whatever psychological reason. They're uninitiated shaman. They're uninitiated healers. Is really what they are. They're wounded people that are just looking for a way to come out of that space. And you yeah. guys have found that initiation in the work that you're doing now. Yeah, it's like we found it separately, too. She had her own journey coming to this space through her own trauma. And, like, at first, our traumas clashed like crazy. I mean, I can't tell you. You didn't see the nights. Yeah, we were both raised by gaslighters. Yeah. So anytime we felt dismissed by the other person, it was like, boom, stab in the heart. Really, really touching on wounds. And I left a relationship right before him. I was severely gaslit and abused and assaulted. So I came into his arms with a lot of stuff on my shoulders. I was shedding and growing up, I wasn't allowed to have a voice. I wasn't allowed to have boundaries. I couldn't be in my body because both homes were so toxic. So I had to dissociate and drift off in my mind and just numb out however I could. But I always had such a passion for making people smile. And I feel my purpose here is to bring joy and enlightenment or facilitate that. In the past, a lot of that's been through performance, through film, theater, acting, singing. But through helping people create change that's lasting and healing, it's so fulfilling, like words can't express. So it's brought me here and... I get to play. I also decided I want to get paid to play. I get to play with people and and I hypnotize them for healing and achieving all they want. I'm curious though, why rope tying? Amongst all the modalities, how did you land here? So Shabari used to trigger me. I'll say that. I would see photos. I had a friend who was getting interested in it like six years ago. And I was like, ugh, what the heck? That's creepy. That's weird. What's, what's the point? And later when it was presented as a biohack or somatic release or a more healing kind of thing, I was like, okay, this freaks me out, but I know I need to do it. I need to go to this workshop. I wasn't really touched as a kid at all, unless it was for my parents randomly or punishment. I was just starting to be a sex and intimacy coach. I didn't think I was going to be tying much. I was like, I'll go and get tied up. When I got to bottom and feel this person with so much tenderness and care and unconditional love and feeling touched in a platonic way, I just remember after I got released, I just broke down sobbing. Like, people need to feel this. I had done so much training in the mind and mindset and NLP. It's not body focused. It doesn't facilitate embodiment in my perspective. It's not trauma informed. And so this was my intro into somatic healing. And it was so profound for me. I was like, I have to bring this to other people. I have to learn this because this is transformative for me. And it finally bridged the gap that I was missing. Mm, Such an incredible story, Summer Estrella. Eric, how did you first get into ropes? I guess I had an infatuation with ropes ever since I was a kid. I even remember this image. I saw this book as a 10-year-old of Japanese woodblock prints at a friend's house on the table, and it was so exotic. It had bound women and bound samurais, all these weird ties, and there were these woodblock prints. You know, I come from a really religious family, so seeing this book open on a coffee table, 
with an open where anybody can look at it. I was just infatuated with these images. And fast forward, I got a tattoo of a bound woman on the side of my leg. And then two months later, I bought a set of ropes. I started tying myself up, just doing all these self-tie. Any self-tie I could, I was reading everything, taking every video off the internet, doing these little Shibari universities, everything I could, just teaching myself my partner at the time came into the space and said, would you like to tie me up? And I was just like, uh, okay, yes. <laughs> so I tied her up and put her into a rope ball and just had her in that space. And she just immediately started crying. And I said, you want me to get you out of the rope? And she was like, nope, leave me here. In that moment, I was like, okay, something is going on here. My unconscious mind is led My into the space. And as a tattoo artist, I, you get in conversations with a lot of people, you know, in a chair for a long period of time, so ropes would come up, and all of a sudden just started realizing how many people wanted to get tied. It blew my mind. People were just like, I want to get tied, I want to get tied, I want to get tied. And I came to it as an artist, and I would take photography of the images, and my mind is always in this place of pushing, pushing shamelessness, as much as I can, because that's been like an issue in my life, being so shamed around sexuality and intimacy and the body. Rope was the one place where I was like, okay, I am going to practice shamelessness on a religious level with my rope art. I'm going to take it all the way. I'm going to get as kinky and raw, and I would offer my models, men and women, get as undressed as you feel comfortable getting. We would negotiate consent on what was touched, what ties I was going to do. And most of the time, I would have models walk right in and just completely undraped, and it was just like continuously floored and honored by this vulnerability that these people were giving me to create these images. And then I would be done tying and they would give me compliments like, I have never felt so beautiful in my life as I have in that moment, being tied up in ropes and being photographed. And I was just, I kept hearing this over and over again. I was like, there is something way bigger happening inside of these ropes than I could possibly imagine that I didn't understand. Once again, fast forward, I live in Austin now. I walk into this person, Smita, and she's teaching rope from a healing perspective. She has this whole language already developed around it, the elements of Tantra incorporated into the touch, the platonic intimacy that can be woven into it. Obviously, a lot of ties could be practiced at a sexual level or a more erotic level, but she was teaching it from a platonic space, and it was working. These people were dropping in. They were being vulnerable. The energy was flowing, and I was like, okay, this was that kind of missing element that my mind was searching for, and she had the language for it. So that's... I immediately just fell in love with her as a person. So how would you begin to talk about your experience of being in a healing space that is playful or being in a playful space? We are, as you said, uninitiated shamans. We are wounded. We experience so much suffering as human beings. And yet we also have this antidote that is mysterious and that seems to come from elsewhere, even if we can facilitate it. 
I love that you just used the word antidote because that's exactly what I was thinking. When I was online during COVID doing a men's specific survive, men's sexual survivors group, and one of those sayings that came up was curiosity is an antidote to shame. Mm-hmm. And I really feel that play starts with curiosity. And whether you're not in a playful mood or feeling like what you're experiencing is play, once curiosity comes into your space, the mind is playing. The mind is playing with possibility. It's playing with imagination. It's putting aside preconceptions and assumptions, and it's opening itself up to the idea that there is more. Mm-hmm. What more? I think play starts with curiosity, mm-hmm. whether we know it or not. And immersing ourselves, we have a practice of vulnerability that we do with each other when we tie each other up on a pretty regular basis. And in that, if I'm tying her, I'm the dom, I'm creating the container, I'm holding the space. When you can hold the right container or find somebody that holds a container for you, that's an awesome thing. That container is non-judgmental of any experience or emotion that she's about to have in the robes. She may have some emotions that come up around us and specifically me, maybe things that I did to her recently that she's embattled with. And creating this container that has no judgment in space creates this exercise of vulnerability. And in that vulnerability, our minds once again they become curious. And so you have this play of curiosity and vulnerability that incites Mm -hmm. this play that doesn't always feel like the play that we think of when we think play, Mm -hmm. but there's some playing happening. Well, we have times that we have some intentional play, and a lot of times we just let it be spontaneous. We very much live by the will of consent of releasing attachment and not having expectations of each other. If there's something I want, I communicate it. And so what that allows us to do is that at any time, if one of us feels complete or if at any time one of us wants to do something different, we're like, sweet, okay, cool. Thanks for honoring yourself. It takes away that attachment that a lot of us have grips on. No, I expect this person to do this for this much time. It just lets us flow more and embrace each other and our boundaries and our current reality. I'd like to add attachment to a destination. Like yeah. For instance, I know it's really big because religion has simplified the male-female relationship down to this moment of copulation and procreation to the point to where there's this destination, especially during a sexual experience. So I think one of the ways to kind of release expectation is to remove those destinations. Sorry, orgasm isn't always on the table. That's like something that we're not necessarily chasing anymore. When you do that, it's like all of a sudden you're opening up all this possibility. Well, what else is there? What else is there? And then you really begin to start to discover, oh, wow, you know, we can play. And that's, I think that's when we, like you said, it's not always on the table. Anything can change at any time. There can be times when her and I are getting incredibly intimate with each other. It's super kinky. And then all of a sudden, she'll go into a crygasm. And then I'll pause and I'll be like, hey, what is this space? How can I honor it for you in this moment? And sometimes it's like, hey, keep going. Sometimes it's no, let's stop, let's talk. And just being able to move 
with all of that and have no destination in mind. I'd add that to the definition of play. Curiosity, vulnerability, and having no expectations, no destination. Yeah, that's an adventure. Yeah, real sense of adventure, not knowing where you might end up. It seems like there's a real intersection of clarity and knowing what the rules are because you're communicating consent. And at the same time, there's openness and flexibility because you're using that and building that container, but without a destination in mind. And we sprinkle it in all the time. Like, we're sexual in different ways. I like to say sprinkle it all throughout the day. We tease each other. Role play with each other. And I feel safe at any time to not engage or to stop. Learn about trauma and somatics, which is trauma in the way the body holds it as memories throughout the body. Learn about wheel of consent. Those things, they didn't come prepackaged in the operating system upstairs. They just didn't. And so learning the language, the embodied feeling of consent, like breathing in, in this moment. Think of something that you imagine as an absolute yes. Ah, breathe out. Where do you feel that yes in your body? And then doing the same for no. Learning all that will then cross over into the experience with family and at work because you're more embodied and then add and sprinkle in, you know, the adventure of learning what you truly desire starts to emerge when you embody your yeses and your noes and you know what they are. Then what I desire starts to to come out. What I desire, not what I was told to desire as a young child. What I, in this moment, desire now starts to come up. And then when you know what you desire, you know how to embody your yeses and noes, then you start going into spaces. And this beautiful person has been so integral to me and my journey in that as we've gone into other events that other people are facilitating she's hypersensitive hyper aware in in i would say absolutely incredibly useful way (laughs) i'm like she's my little super sensor and she's like okay there's an integrity issue in this container for one there's no such thing as a bulletproof container we've actually walked into containers that we thought were perfectly set in places and they just shattered yeah, it's so complicated creating that sense of safety for people and creating a safe container. I'm curious, as you all as healers and facilitators look out at this renaissance of healing and also play and all the interesting edgy things that are happening here in Austin, what do you all see? What are some of the awesome things that you love? And maybe what are some of the shadow sides that you've been noticing? One thing I love about the Austin community is there's so much innovation, there's so many opportunities, and humans need connection. It's so, so important. We need community. And I love that that's so abundant. The stretch and opportunity I see is people see their friend doing an event and they're like, oh, cool, easy money, that looks fun. And they jump in without proper training and consent or being trauma-informed or just any training at all. And facilitation is a whole beast in and of itself. Even applying all my years in NLP, real consent training, coaching training, I still had blind spots in the beginning. And that's why I reflected that in my pricing. That's why I was authentic and told people I'm new to this. That's why I asked for feedback consistently. And I was also modeling successful facilitators and successful people. I set myself up for creating really safe spaces from the beginning. And I think I desire in our community a little more humility 
and not seeing people's dollar signs and not using people as guinea pigs. But have some humility, do a test run. If it's new, have that reflected in your prices. Be totally upfront on the copy. Don't act like an expert if this is your first event. And you'd be like, surprised how many people will support you yeah. in that new space you yeah. want to support you. My first yeah. Jabari event was donation-based and I sold out. What I love about it the most is all the people who are so enthusiastic about wanting there to be a healing community, wanting this healing community to be diverse, all these different experiences popping up. I love it. And I think it's one of the most diverse, eclectic, yes. weird. There's something for everyone here in this space. So, yeah. One good thing about the abundance of events is it does require people to raise the bar. When they yeah. go to other spaces and they're like, oh, I should probably be doing that in my events. It raises the bar. I'd like to see more conscious use of language, like stop installing people. So neutral language and taken from my NLP training as say it the way you want it. Don't lead a meditation and then start putting negatives in there. Being mindful that when you're presenting, people are in trance in your events. There's a power dynamic there. Everything you say, you take in as suggestion. And that's something that my NLP trainer's training really, really enforced in me and I embodied is being extremely mindful of what we say when we're teaching others, when we're in a space. And I've learned that through reps of doing my workshop. And then when I say things like, I used to tell them in the very beginning, like, embody your desires the whole time. If you want to leave early, just leave early. And then <laughs> there will usually be at least one person that would leave early. When I stopped saying that, no one wanted to leave early. So things like that. Um, Say what you want to happen. That is so powerful. It is, especially when as soon as like, you walk into our space, you're going to enter into a slight trance because of the nature of the sacred. We cultivate a lot of reverence in this space. So then it becomes even more important. In ceremonial magic, we have this thing that every single sound that comes out of your throat, your mouth, is magic. Every sound. Ah, your loud breath is magic. Every word that comes out is magic. You are casting a spell on somebody with your words, every single thing you're saying. And even in this moment, we are casting spells on each other. When you enter in a space where we're going into trance, though, that becomes, as Summer Australia was saying, so important. Like, for instance, prior to teaching the single column time in our rope classes, she chants, now everybody repeat after me, this is going to be incredibly easy. Just a simple <laughs> casting of that spell. And you have full permission to be messy. And we've literally watched teaching single column ties to people get cut in half because we just casted the spell that it was going to be easy. And yeah. they received and it was easy. I want to remember this when I yeah. have a conversation with my partner. Say what you want to happen. Casting magic. <laughs> Ski coaches are teaching their students how to go down a mountain. They don't say, try and don't hit a tree. They say, find the easiest path down that mountain. And See the white path. See the white path of snow down the mountain. Yeah. And just Focus follow that. On what you want. They're not even, they're going to go right down. That it's so fun to hear you guys talk about your work together. And we're really curious to hear you talk about how you make it work. Not just owning a business together, but also having a romantic and intimate partnership. Seems like you've put a lot of work into that, and we're curious what that looks like. Overall, it's that we have a huge dedication to our personal growth. And 
For our values, that's one of the top things we need in a partner. And there's an NLP values alignment thing that I literally did with him a week and a half in. I was facing some difficulty and I was like, all right, let's just see if we're aligned. Do we even have the same values? When we actually put it on paper, it was health, it was personal growth, and a dedication to amazing sex, communication. And we just hit the ground running in our relationship. At the bottom of it, in our guts, in our foundation, we knew we have the same values. There's no reason for this to not work. We have such investment in our personal growth that we constantly took each other's feedback. Being open to feedback. Being open to feedback. We definitely can go with each other with feedback, but we have really learned to... Because when we take give each other feedback, trigger ping pong is probably going to happen. In the beginning. It would take me like two weeks to even tell him my feedback. Two weeks ago, you said this thing and it activated me. It triggered me. (laughs) So we've gotten so comfortable with each other now. Having a boundary led to two parents being like, we're done. Peace. Literally an email saying, I will call you when I'm ready. Like that broke the camel's back. You had a boundary with your parents. It's been almost 10 years. And so I have this major trauma speaking my truth. So with new people, it can take me a few weeks to feel safe. I had my own version of the abandonment. Yeah. Trauma too. So that was huge. But now it's pretty easy pretty direct i would just say too she was talking about the values alignment having that concrete feeling and foundation that okay this can work now how are we getting in the way of this working and one of the constant realizations that i have to continuously remind myself of and i know she has her own version of reminding herself is that anytime we get triggered by each other I automatically know that trigger is coming from a trauma history that existed prior to me ever even meeting her. She has nothing to do with it. She is just the object in that moment. She is just the object of that particular trauma or that inner child being activated, but she's not the reason that activation or potential activation is there, that it is my trauma history, it is that past. So we've begun to look at triggers as flashlights into the dark. They are places where if she triggers me, uh, we've learned how to come back later and say thank you. Yeah. Thank you for triggering me. Thank you for showing me that space inside me that needed some attention, some love, some growth. Healing. That's such an incredible way of understanding what our triggers are. Flashlights into the dark. I just love that so much. I also think that one of the greatest signs of healing or having healed is experiencing that gratitude that you're describing. Yeah, I think I want to pivot to another question that we have about your relationship with divinity, the transcendent, the mystery, the unknown. But maybe to bring it down a little bit, we might begin by asking you if you have a deity you work with, a cosmic mentor or archetype of any kind that you work with embodying or just that you contemplate or that you seek in your life right now. Any thoughts on that? As a ceremonial magician, I've been practicing the embodiment of archetypes and deities and bringing them into my experience for a long time. I'm going to use the word mythologies because I feel that's what we're doing. A mythological overlay onto our experience. Some people have a very high science, really concrete, atheistic, no deity, no unseen. And that's their mythology that they put on their experience. And then some people get more creative with it and maybe put in a Judeo-Christian or maybe a Buddhistic mythology. So my mythology, I practice a version of chaos magic, which is I get to pick and choose. 
take it like a buffet I take from my Celtic blood roots. I take from my Native American blood roots. I take from my Judaic blood roots. I take it from some of my Norse. Some of the terminology I will say maybe a little bit triggering for some people that I use about the deities that I go to because my ceremonial magic was based on a Judeo-Christian version, so I used a lot of demonics in there. Demon, coming from the word in Greek as daemon, meaning wise, helpful spirit. Demons were demonized by the Christian mythology that came along and invaded the space and made all the gods or deities of that particular territory submissive to their god and deity. And so in doing that, a lot of these helpful spirits that were incredibly useful to the people in those places became you know, less or evil or whatever. I like to go into these places in time and history where particular days were pushed down by other ones, and I like to pull those ones up. So I use a lot of straight-up links in my work, bringing those useful, helpful spirits. I use a lot of the Native American as in spirit and all things, you know, even the rocks and the trees are singing, even the dirt is singing. It's alive with stardust and power and existence. I've worked a lot with Lilith. I've worked a lot with the Luciferian stuff. I've worked a lot with Greek mythology. I've worked a ton with Druidic mythology. I do actual evocations where I'll sit in front of my mirror with my candle and my ceremonial setup. I do them at night, probably like once or twice a week, and I'll call in a day through my mirror, whatever your wisdom is, bring it to me this evening, bring it to me in my sleep, bring it to me now. I will take wisdom from any deity mm. that exists out there. I will take wisdom from Yahweh, I will take wisdom from mm -hmm. Zeus, I will take wisdom from Shakti, from Kali was one that I've recently been working with. And then one of my most current iterations that I've been beginning an invocation for that will lead to an evocation eventually, the actual bringing in of that spirit, is Pan. I don't know why. It was just this constant thing. Something about Pan and the word panic. Mm -hmm. Panic being inside in moments of mm. excitement as well as trauma. Which one am I actually experiencing? Maybe that thing I thought was traumatic is actually something exciting that I'm afraid of. And there's Pan on... Pan's whistle, trying to lull me towards that exciting space. So Pan's been one that I've been slowly calling in that I'll be doing evocation for. So yeah, I love archetypes. Uh, all magic is powerful me. I don't diss anyone's magic at all. Everyone. Everyone's God. Everyone's magic. Bring it up. Take it all. Love it. Love yeah. it. So glad I <laughs> For me, I spent so much of my life pedestalizing others that coming back to my body and myself and what do I need? I'm my best coach. I'm my best mentor. And that's been my current journey. And I like to tap into my higher self. What does my higher self think? And have a dialogue and channel that. And I like to externally process him a lot, but also channeling like Aphrodite energy, Athena energy. She's been very present for me. The last six months of speaking my truth, giving feedback where it's really scary to people and just continuously fighting for my boundaries and needs. That's my current thing. Beautiful, beautiful. I know I've definitely appreciated hearing you do that, whether over social media or in person in workshops. Yeah, just appreciating both of those responses and all of your responses here today. It's been awesome to talk to you guys. So tell us as we wrap up this podcast today, what do you all have coming up for Awakening Arts? So every, every other month we do self-tie as meditation. And that was really amazing. Every month we do a beginner's 
shibari class. Lately it's been BDSM and shibari. And we have an awesome weekend workshop coming up first weekend of November. That's a two-day immersion into shibari, incorporating elemental touch, hypnosis, ceremonial magic, trauma-informed spaces, and topping and bottoming. We did a sample of that in our BDSM and Shibari class, yeah. but the workshop, the two-day immersion, that really takes Lots deeper of ties, to the next level. Lots of ties, super, super potent and magical. Thank you so much to our guests, Summer Estrella and Erica Dama of Awakening Arts. This was a super, super potent, magical conversation for us. We're so grateful to them for their time. We hope that you'll find them through their website, which is awakening-arts.com. And they also have some great content on Facebook and Instagram. We will go ahead and put their handles in our show notes so that you can find them. Stay tuned to LilaCast ATX. We've got some really juicy episodes coming out in the next few weeks and over the coming months. We have been interviewing healers and practitioners in all kinds of modalities, somatic experiencing, ketamine therapy, sex and intimacy coaching, ecstatic dance, Ladihan, which if you haven't heard of that, it is blindfolded contact improv, highly recommend. Well, maybe not for everyone, but definitely learn more about it in our upcoming episode. Honestly, we're having so much fun talking about play and healing, dreams and archetypes, consent and communication in all these different modalities, and absolutely enjoying getting some of the backstories of this rich cast of characters. Please follow us on Instagram at LilaCastATX if you haven't already. Let us know how you liked the first episode and definitely let us know if there are particular healers or playful facilitators that you would love to hear from on this podcast. LilaCast ATX is hosted and produced by Grace Ortman and Monsi Parikh with original music by the one and only David Schaefer.